to introduce things this morning, I want to invite you into uh, what can only be labeled as a constant dilemma within the Cunningham family. It's the dreaded back seat of the minivan. Um, back seat would not be a problem if we had three kids. Not be a problem if we had five kids, but alas, it's a big dilemma for four. Um, here's the setup. Henry is still in his car seat, so of course he has a permanent spot in the middle row. Yay, Henry. Which leaves only two seats for three boys. And with that, the battle lines are drawn. Every single time our family is loading up, I know what's coming. The backseat fight. Nobody wants it. Who would? All alone in minivan exile. Car sickness. Can't hear conversation. They hate it back there, and I don't blame them. And it is impossible to over, overestimate the significance of that little dilemma within our family culture. Now, you on the outside uh, looking in might suggest, this is ridiculous. Just tell them to get in the back seat. <laughs> My naive friends. Listen, I grant this is silly, Uh, But to those three boys, in that moment, it is as significant as the rising tensions in Iran. It is everything to them. And as silly as that may sound, tragically, it's all something we are familiar with personally. If you recall last week, I said that we we have officially moved out of the um, honeymoon period of the early church. If you... Read the first few chapters of Acts, it would seem that the gospel was going to just spread, unimpeded, take over the world. Well, last week, all of that came to a screeching halt with arrest, imprisonment, beating of the apostles. Now, this week, that opposition continues. We're still looking at the struggles of the church, only not from without, but from within. Something we on the outside would be tempted to view as just silly, is literally threatening to devour the early church from within. And we're going to look at this. We're going to look at the internal challenge that this church and every church faces in two ways. The cancer of selfishness and the cure of selflessness. Let me just say this to those of you who may be uh, visiting with us today, um, especially if if you're here and wouldn't necessarily call yourself a follower of Jesus you know, every sermon we're try, we try to be mindful um, that there are many here um, not a part of our community, but sometimes the passage lends itself to a need to, for lack of better words, just have family talk, um, to speak directly to those who call TCPC home. And, and this is one of those sermons, so it definitely applies to everyone. If you call TCPC home, it really applies to you. And if that's not you, great, just listen in and maybe, maybe consider how a church dialogues with this issue that is always before us. Let's look at the cancer of selfishness. Now, in in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And with that, for the first time in recorded church history, we have ourselves a good old-fashioned church fight. Hellenists are those who speak Greek, Hebrews are those who speak Aramaic, and the Hellenist converts 
were fighting with the Hebrew converts because it seemed like the Hellenist widows weren't being cared for in the same way the Hebrew widows were. And we say, finally, we can relate to the church in Acts, right? Finally, this is starting to sound like the church as we know it. Silly infighting. Of course, our churches aren't familiar with Greek Aramaic tensions, but we most certainly are familiar with infighting. And infighting over what appears to be seemingly ridiculous issues. Think about the church in Acts. They are on the heels of the miracle of Pentecost. They are seeing revival, healings, signs and wonders. They were just arrested, imprisoned, and beating. There are some fairly significant things taking place. But what is it that has captured their attention? Their widows are getting more food than our widows. Is that not so, church? A holy institution proclaiming eternally significant truths, compelled by a grand and glorious vision, and yet we fixate and fight over the silliest of things. But the point is that to those involved, it isn't silly. This is huge. We might be on the outside looking in on this situation and say, come on, the distribution of food, that's what's got you worked up? I mean, come on, just get over it, figure it out, get some more food. But I guarantee that to them, this thing going on was huge. And the reason why I know it's huge is because it's recorded in Acts as something that's significant. I'm sure there are a lot of hurt feelings going on in this church. I'm sure there are divided friendships, feelings of betrayal. I bet there are camps forming. I bet there was distrust of leadership. I bet there was slander. There was gossip. There was politicking going on. I bet this issue that seems so small to us was threatening to literally divide them. And the reason why I'm assuming that is because I know how this stuff works. We all know how this works. This is way too familiar to all of us. And the reason it's familiar is that we all share in the common root cause that is at the bottom of this, which is selfishness. On the most fundamental level, to be sinful is to be selfish. The fall has turned all of us inward such that we naturally seek ourselves above all else. Our wants, our ambitions, our desires, our opinions, our fame. This is what fallen humanity naturally obsesses over. It's at the root of, again, like Will says, MLK weekend, tomorrow's MLK day. Listen, what's at the root of all of it? Don't overcomplicate it. We're sinful, selfish people. We love ourselves and we love people like us. And so this leads to tribalism, racism, prejudice. This is what we do. This is what is natural to humanity from birth, I might add. This is who we are. Don't believe me? It's going on right now down there in that nursery. Your precious kids are at war right now under the battle cry of mine. And to them... That cheap plastic toy is the biggest deal in the world. Just like those who were getting more food was the biggest deal 
in our passage, we never outgrow the nursery. What the flaw of selfishness does is take small things, backseat of the van type of things, and elevate them to ridiculous proportions. My wants become needs. My preferences become requirements. My opinions become absolutes. These are the symptoms of the cancer of selfishness. And I think we see this play out in churches in particular. Of course, every organization struggles with infighting because every organization is filled with selfish people, but there is a reason why churches are notorious for it. And again, if you're on the outside looking in on us, it's probably uh, maybe refreshing for me to hear you, hear, for you to hear me admit that. Yeah, churches do this a lot. We're kind of known for it. Why? Because we bear a unique quality that lends itself to it, and it's in our text. The Hellenists were fighting with the Hebrews. So what's the big deal with that? The big deal is that nowhere in the ancient world would Hellenists and Hebrews be together in fellowship like this. The church bears with it a unique diversity that no other organization does. Every organization gathers around commonality. We affiliate ourselves with organizations, institutions, clubs, neighborhoods, whatever. We affiliate ourselves with those that are filled with people like us. Who think like we think, who enjoy what we enjoy, who dislike what we dislike, and on and on it goes. And the media age has only perpetuated that as our online lives are nothing but tribal living. And even still, those communities fight. The church gathers around the gospel. Our common ground is the ground at the foot of the cross, which is as diverse as it is holy. And what this does is it creates a very unconventional community of people who normally wouldn't find themselves in fellowship were it not for Jesus. And this unconventional community is then expected to covenant together as a family. That's not easy. Especially when you add to it what we're up against. Something else we dare not miss here is that things are going really well for the church. Look one more, at verse, one more time at verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Two things are happening here. The church is growing in number, praise the Lord, and widows are being cared for, praise the Lord. Do you think Satan likes that? Nobody cared for widows in the ancient world. This was a distinguishing mark of early Christianity, their care for the discarded, orphaned, and widows. So this is a beautiful thing they're doing. This is amazing taking in the widows. And it doesn't surprise me in the least that this becomes the location of their infighting and division. Of course, the evil one would seek to divide them there because the evil one hates something this righteous and just and good. So my contention is this. This is what I'm trying to say. Selfishness is a threat to everything. But churches in particular are susceptible to its cancer. And make no mistake, it is a cancer. Look at the devastating results. Verse 2. The twelve summoned the full members of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. 
What inevitably happens when the church is embroiled in selfish infighting is that the leadership is forced to neglect their primary calling to tend to the infighting. Now listen, this could easily turn into an opportunity for me to throw a biblically justified pity party before you, and I'm not going to do that. It's not the point here. Your pastor is counted a privilege to shepherd God's flock, and we are, of course, willing to enter into any and every pastoral need. And we don't want you to withhold your needs from us for fear of burdening us, okay? That being said, I know and will knows too well the truth of verse 2. Every pastor does. I don't know one friend in the ministry that would not say amen to verse 2. The word and prayer are the first to go when selfishness seizes a congregation. We find ourselves mitigating some of the most ridiculous situations, navigating some of the most ridiculous opinions, alleviating some of the most ridiculous tensions, all while neglecting what God has called us to do. And it's what is neglected that is the tragic consequence. The problem in our passage is less about what was happening in the church and much, much more about what was not happening in the church. This is easy to miss, but so crucial to see. Do you remember from last week and the external opposition from last week's sermon why they were being persecuted? It was for preaching the word. The authorities brought them in and said, stop talking about Jesus. And they said, sorry, you do whatever you need to do. We're not going to stop talking about Jesus. And they were arrested and beaten. And the passage ends with them continuing to preach the word. External opposition cannot stop the proclamation of God's word. And then immediately following what happens in our passage, God's word is stopped. God's word is neglected because the church is fighting. That's not a coincidence. The point that is being emphasized here is that the enemy within is far more powerful than the enemy without. The greater culture can tell me to stop doing what I'm doing, stop saying what I'm saying. I got one of those emails this week in response to one of my podcasts saying, you can't say that. And it's not hard for me to say, sorry, yes I can. That's not going to stop me. If anything, it reinvigorates my calling. But if today, thankfully we are a healthy, happy church, but if today selfish division were to rise up in our community, no matter how silly the division may be, I would have to stop what I am doing and give myself to it. And prayer and preaching would suffer. That's how much power the church holds over its mission. We give so much energy and time fixating on the opposition of the culture at large when it's the culture of a congregation that is the greatest threat. Nothing has the power to shut down the work of the church like the members of the church itself. So what's the answer? Well, don't overcomplicate things. If selfishness is the cancer, then selflessness is the cure. Let's move on that to that, the cure of selflessness. Therefore, brothers, verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And then they choose the first uh, deacons in the New Testament and uh, ordain them with the laying on of hands. Now, 
There are two ways to interpret that. Through a pragmatic lens and through a principled lens. Pragmatically speaking, this is the institution of the office of deacon. The New Testament church has two ordained offices. uh, Deacon and elder. Elder was entrusted with the shepherding and oversight of the church. Deacon was entrusted with the service and care of the church. And this is the beginning of the office of deacon. Ordained to take care of the needs of the church so that the apostles and eventually the elders could tend to the ministry of the word. And in the PCA, in our denomination, we retain the offices of elder and deacon in our church structure. But what I don't want to do with this is just make it a point about deacons, which it often is. That's often what people do with this passage, is think that it's just given to talk about the institution of the office of deacon. I don't want to do that. I don't want to just say to our ordained diaconate, y'all take care of it so that I can preach and pray, sermon over, amen. That misses the principle of the passage. For example, just because the church has elders to lead in the shepherding responsibilities of the church, does that therefore mean that members of the church are exempt from the call to shepherd their own life and the lives of their brothers and sisters? Just because God has called me to preach the word to you, does that therefore mean that you are not called to preach the word to yourself and to others? Of course not. Well, the same is true of deacons. Just because God has ordained in our text an office to lead the church in the work of selfless service does not therefore imply that you are exempt from your own calling as selfless servants. Deacon. The word deacon is derived from the Greek diakonos. The word literally means servant. And he argued in the context of the Greek of the day, even bond servant, which would be equivalent to a slave in their culture. So the word is literally the inverse of selfishness. A life devoted not to what I want, but to what you want. Now, it is not a coincidence that bond servants were literally ordained in response to the first episode of selfish division within the church. That's not mere pragmatics. We got a problem, you deacons fix it. This is a deeply theological and principled statement that it is the antidote of selfishness in response to infighting rooted in what I want, diaconus emerges, which is rooted in what you want. And that principle is the cure to the cancer of selfishness. And here's what I mean. The message goes way beyond stop being selfish. It starts there, of course. Lay your non-essentials, lay your opinions, your preferences, your wants, lay them all on the altar. Don't be selfish with these, but that's just the beginning. The cure to selfishness is not just renouncing selfishness, it is pursuing selflessness. It is serving the church so much that you don't have time to divide the church with your selfishness. And that's the nature of application I want us to take this morning. I suppose a good question of application would be to ask, where is your selfishness threatening to undo us? You know, identify your needs, your preferences, your opinions. What's your non-essentials that you are tempted to elevate to unhealthy proportions that could divide us and and choose instead to die to those? That's a good application, worthy to think about. But I I don't think that goes far enough. 
Instead, my question of application is more proactive. Not what selfishness is God calling you to refuse, but what selflessness is God calling you to pursue? It's the difference between stop arguing over the distribution of food and get up and start waiting tables. You you can't selfishly argue if you're selflessly serving. So when it comes to our community, at the risk of sounding trite, where is God calling you to just get in the back seat? Occasionally, there's this blessed moment in the Cunningham family, this moment of reprieve where one of the boys, for whatever reason, a good mood, just decides, you know what, I'll take the back seat. You have no idea what that does to the culture of our family. <laughs> that little act. Not just does it reactively avoid the fight, but proactively speaking, it literally transforms the culture of our family. It's so refreshing, so uplifting. Never do we feel better as a family than when someone dies to what they want and just gets in the back seat. And I'm challenging each and every member of our community to do likewise. Not just repent of selfishness, but discern a need within this congregation that you and your gifts can fill and simply say, I got it. I'll do it. If you are a member of TCPC, you have taken vows to do just that. To support the church in its work and worship to the best of your ability. To become a member so devoted to selflessness that you just don't have time for selfishness that would divide. You have no idea what that simple application will do to the culture of a church. If you need help with that, that's fine. Maybe you say, I'd love to do that. I just don't know, I don't know what, 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 what the needs are and how my gifts line up. I'm, I'm going to commend to you Will for that. Will is the director of our ministries. This man is, uh, Will, I would, you're gift, you are gifted at the reactive stuff. You could put out a fire or two. He's incredible at proactive. He has all the vision, all the charts of our ministries, all the needs. He's got spreadsheets and maps and graphs and everything that is Will Witherington. And you come to him and say, I want to serve. He will not only help you find that, he will discern your gifts, empower you, and find the way that you can be a part of serving to guard against selfishness. That's my challenge to each and every member of our community. And we have no idea what that would do to a church. Actually, we do. Because that's how our passage ends. Look at verse 7. The word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. The principle we see here is internal diaconus yields external growth. But not just any growth. This is subtle but so intentional we need to see it. Who's being converted? Luke takes care to note that many priests became obedient to the faith. Do you know who that is? The ones in the previous passage persecuting the church. In chapter 5, it ends with the high priest and his council ordering the apostles to stop preaching their faith. Chapter 6 begins with a great many of those priests becoming obedient to the faith. 
That's not a coincidence. And we are meant to see the connection. External enemies won over by defeating the enemy within. Nothing is more powerful than a selfless church. I suppose that's why our Lord himself said they'll know if you love each other. Nothing is more powerful than a selfless church. Why? Because the church is not just preaching the gospel. They are embodying the gospel. Why do we do this? Because this is our Jesus. What did he do? Yes, of course, he was not selfish. Yes, of course, he refused to selfishly hold on to what he could have wanted. More than that, though, he selflessly chose to become a deacon. Direct quote from Scripture. He did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, that is, as something to selfishly hold on to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a, and it's the Greek word, diaconus. This is what the church does because this is what Jesus has done for the church. Where is God calling you to just get in the back seat? Let's do it. Not just for the sake of internal health, but for the sake of external power. Let me pray. Lord, fill us with the good news of your service that we might serve likewise. And nothing testifies to your humbling service as a deacon than this table. And so would you now fill us with your gospel. Strengthen us with what you have done that we might go and do likewise. In your name we pray. Amen.